All right, good morning, everybody. I'm sorry that it stinks in here. Uh, I don't really know why it stinks in here, but I just want to acknowledge that it does stink in here. And uh, it's an old building, and sometimes we have that issue, so I apologize. But anyways, uh, moving on. This morning, we're uh, continuing in our series in Matthew and in our, our series called Lent, and we'll be uh, moving into chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one and you'd like to just follow along with us, uh, there's some Bibles available on the taller tables in the back two corners. You're welcome to grab one of those. You can use it. You can take it home with you. It's yours. So um, feel free to grab one of those. And uh, we're going to get going, but before we do, could we just uh, pray together first? Father, I thank you uh, for this day. It's a day that you have made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it, Psalm 118 says. And, but I pray that you give us a heart and a posture in our heart that is grateful, that is thankful for who you are, what you've done, what you've made us, and what you're calling us to be, so that we can truly say that we're thankful for this day and that it's because of you and that you made it and that it means it's good. Father, I pray that this morning as we gather together, we'll be reminded of the gospel, that Jesus would be uh, made known, that your fame would be spread even in this room, and that our hearts would uh, be awakened by the Spirit to, to know your great love for each one of us. I pray, Father, that you would have me say what you would have me say, that you would have each one of us that leads the service uh, say what you would have us say, that your words would be what's coming out, and that you would have each one of us in the room hear what you would have each one of us hear so that our hearts are changed, we're able to submit all areas of life to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus Christ. Would you lead us into doing that for our joy, for your glory, and would you send us from this place proclaiming your excellencies. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't normally do this, and at the risk of being a little bit cheesy or something, I brought... Uh, I brought something for show and tell this morning. It's this guy. This is a robot-ish, if you can't see it, it's right there. This is a robot. So over the last year or so, my my kids got into robots, okay? And uh, let's see, I think it's on one of their shows, there's some dancing robots. I was going to do the dance for you, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not do that. But anyways, you know, they really got into them. They really started wanting to, wanting to talk about them all the time. Daddy, can we sing the robot song? We'd sing the robot song. Daddy, will you draw me a robot? Mommy, will you draw me? Just all the time, they're very much into robots. And so uh, when Claire's sister asked what might be a good present for Jack this year for Christmas, a robot seemed like a pretty good idea, right? Now, in my head a toy robot just kind of moves around the house like, you know, like this. Maybe like make some like beep boop bop, you know, type noises. Maybe teaches my kids algebra or something. But that's kind of the idea that I have in my mind when I think of a robot. However, this is not that kind of robot. Um, on Christmas morning, we're at Claire's parents' house. Uh, Jack gets his present, he opens it, he's all a robot, you know, and then he brings it to me, and while we're still under the tree, I open the box, it's like covered in like Japanese writing, there's like no English on it, Uh, I think the only English is actually on it, and it should have been some clue to me, because this guy's name is Robot, not very creative, Um, but anyways, I open it up, I put some batteries in, and I set it on the floor, and I turned it on, and I ruined my Christmas, and I ruined everybody else's Christmas, 
Let me just show you what this guy does. It's great. You don't even need a microphone, right? We can all hear it. And it just goes on and on. You know, it's not going to stop. It just keeps going. And there's like lights and lasers. It's so annoying. It doesn't stop. There's no, there's no volume button on this thing. Like all my toys have at least two volume. You can't hear me over this. I can't hear me over this robot. Anyways, this robot. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a robot, first of all. But this is what Jack got for... For Christmas, this robot here. And if I had been expecting, maybe, maybe if I had been expecting some sort of like techno-Japanese polka-singing robot to come into my house that doesn't have an, like a, a volume switch, it doesn't do this. Most toys, I don't know if everybody knows this, but most toys, they'll go for like 30 seconds and then they give the parents a break. And I'm pretty... I'm pretty tolerant like about toys. I bought my kid a drum set for Christmas and I love it. I, it doesn't bother me. This thing right here. I'm about to start shaking. Uh, <laughs> but maybe if I'd have been expecting this when I heard the name robot, I, and then I would have got, and say I would have got, if I would have been expecting this, and then I would have got a, you know, a different robot to come in my house, like the one that teaches my kids algebra, just something nice and quiet, you know, that would have been a nice surprise. But instead, I was expecting the other, and I got this, right? And I'm just showing you this because I think we can all kind of relate to where you get something that you, or you anticipate that you're getting one thing, and then you get something totally different. Have you ever been anticipating like one thing, whether it's good or bad, it doesn't have to be like a bad, evil robot like that. Have you ever been anticipating one thing, good or bad, and ended up with something that was quite different than what you were expecting? Thought you were gonna get one thing, and you ended up with something just quite different than what you actually expected from it. As we get into the, the text today, the question that I want, to, uh, want us to wrestle with is, uh, is whether we want some idea of Jesus, something that we've come up with, something that we've designed, something that we've anticipated that it means for Jesus to come. Do we want some idea of Jesus, or do we want Jesus for who he really is? As we turn to chapter 21, we're going to break into this. Chapter 21 so last, uh, last week we went over chapter 19 and 20, and that saw the, Jesus and his disciples leaving Galilee and, and going towards Jerusalem and, and setting course, not just for Jerusalem, but for the cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this week, as we get into, into chapter 21 of Matthew, we find Jesus and his disciples have come to the end of their journey from Galilee and are preparing to actually enter Jerusalem and what's going on in Jerusalem at this time? There's many pilgrims and many people that are in the city. There's lots of people gathered. It's bustling because, the festi- because of the festivities of the Passover. All right? and let's take a look at Matthew 21. I'm just going to read uh, verse 1 through 11 as we get going. Twenty-one, one through 11. It says this. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey, 
on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, in this uh, passage, Matthew is cluing us in on the significance of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a colt by quoting uh, Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah. One thing that's significant about him writing in this way is that the, the kings of the time, the kings even of, uh, you know, of the, old, uh, the Old Testament even uh, times, would often ride donkeys in the time of peace. They would ride donkeys when peace was theirs, when, when there was a time of peace. They weren't riding into battle or into military conquest. They don't need a horse. They would ride a donkey. But instead of coming in with military conquest, instead of coming in on a horse, he comes in on a donkey, on a colt in a time of peace. It should have been some sort of clue for them. And another thing that is significant about Jesus' entrance uh, and how uh, Zechariah is tied to this passage is that the, is the messianic hopes of the people of, of Jesus' day are actually tied to this passage in Zechariah 9.9. Let's just read what it actually says in Zechariah 9.9. Right before it talks about coming in on a colt and coming in on a, a donkey, it says this. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. And that's when it says, behold, your king's coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. And so this passage is like, with the messianic hopes that the people already have in Jesus' day is actually tied, they know this, they're tied to their hopes for a savior, for a coming king. It's a well-known passage, it's tied to their hope for a Messiah. And so all things considered, this is just what I want us to see. We need to see that Jesus knew what he was doing and he was being very intentional. He was intentionally declaring his identity as the foretold Messiah and King to the nation. When he came in, when he got a donkey and a colt and he rode in on that, he knew what he was doing. He was intentionally declaring his identity as the Messiah and the King to the nation and to the people of Jerusalem. And judging by the celebratory response of the crowd, you'd have to say that they're getting the message, at least to some extent. Like I said, this crowd is, is gathered for the Passover festivities where it was customary to sing the songs of uh, the Hallel. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. It's called the Hallel. Uh, we just sang hallelujah, right? Hallel is where that comes from. It means um, save us, O Lord, basically save us. Uh, but these songs are found in Psalm 113 through 118. And these are the customary songs that they would sing at the time of Passover. Like at their festivities, people are singing these songs that we find in Psalm 113 through 118. And it's from one of those songs in Psalm 118. Fresh in their minds, it's fitting for the setting, that the crowd begins to cry out affirmation and sing praise for Jesus as he enters the city. And they quote from Psalm 18, one of the songs they've been singing uh, during the, the pet, during this, this season of Passover, is, it says this, Psalm 118, 25 through 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray. Give us success. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so we see in Matthew 21, 9, it says, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna, and Hosanna uh, being, is being translated, uh, Save us to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the highest. With the addition of calling him the son of David, the reference uh, just clearly demonstrates, it clearly demonstrates that the messianic implications of Jesus' entrance Right? They get it. They see they're getting the message. But, like I said, they're getting it in part. As we've kind of seen through the whole ministry of Jesus um, on earth and, and through the Gospel of Matthew, we will find that there's a major gap between what the crowds are expecting of the Messiah King and what Jesus proclaims and actually comes to do. There's going to be a major gap. We're going to find this. We found it with everybody that Jesus has been coming in contact through the, the story almost, right? Is that there's a major gap between what the crowds are expecting of the Messiah King and what Jesus proclaims and actually comes to do. See, they want a warrior king who can lead Israel into power to be over other nations. But that's not what Jesus is about. Maybe had they picked up on the implications of Jesus riding in on a colt, they would have realized that he didn't come to lead them into battle maybe could have been a clue to the crowds that the authority that he was declaring that he had, uh, that he was coming with, was to be used for a much different way than what they expected. He entered Jerusalem with power and authority, but it was for the reconciliation of all things. It was for bringing peace and making everything right. It wasn't to make Israel a great power that could lord over the nations. What we'll see is the crowd's response we know this. The crowd's response changes tone over the next few days in the story, doesn't it? He comes in. This is the triumphal entry. He comes in, and they're praising him. They're singing Hosanna to the son of David. And then over the next few days, they turn on him. We know their tone changes. And as we see that, we'll see that the Messiah was really nothing more than a commodity to them. The Christ, the King, the foretold Messiah was really nothing more than a commodity to them, to the crowd, and to those who were expecting him. And this is the same danger that I want us to contemplate this morning. I want us to just be awakened to the fact that we have the same danger of using Jesus as nothing more than a commodity. You see, people have done that all throughout history. People have used Jesus as a commodity throughout history, and it happens today. You don't have to go that far back in our history to even see it. Those who were for slavery in America made Jesus to be for slavery. They read it, read it into the Bible that the Bible was good with what they were doing, right? And those who were for segregation not even that long ago would use Jesus toward that end. Those who would put all their hopes in like, a presidential candidate, no matter what presidential candidate, no matter what year, those who put all their hopes in that presidential candidate will make Jesus for their candidate. Maybe you, like I, have used Jesus in what we feel like are lesser ways, but are no lesser ways. Maybe you've used somebody's prayer request as an excuse to gossip. Maybe You've used your own church attendance or missions involvement or 
knowledge of churchy language to make yourself appear and feel more right and more valuable than somebody else. Or maybe you've commodified Jesus by claiming his name when he gives you an advantage in business, but then silencing that name when it seems that it would be at a disadvantage for you in business or elsewhere. We're in danger of the same thing that they were in danger of and that they did. We can commodify Jesus and just use him for whatever agendas we have or whatever kingdoms we're building. The question that I want us to ask ourselves then, as Jesus intentionally makes his identity known, is whether Jesus is really anything more than a commodity to us. Because what we really need to see clearly is that Jesus didn't come to prove you right or to make me right, or to prove me right. Jesus didn't come to prove any of us right, whatever agenda we have for him. He came to make you right with God and with others. Jesus didn't come to prove you right. He didn't come to accomplish your agenda, or my agenda, or anybody else's agenda. He didn't come to build my kingdom or to build your kingdom. He came to build his kingdom, and that involves making you right with God and with everything else, and with everybody and everything else. So after Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, he goes into the temple. And this, is, this takes place in Matthew 21, 12 through 17. We, we see Jesus like going to the temple. He's turning over the tables of the money changers. He's referencing old prophets. And uh, during our Advent series, we actually covered this particular passage. And you can go back on the website and check that out. I think it's on New Year's Day we covered this particular one. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But what I'd really like to take us to take note of this morning is what Jesus demonstrates about his authority in this particular scene. He's come claiming authority by intentionally entering the city as a king and a messiah, right? You enter as a king, you're claiming authority. Then the first thing he does is he enters a temple, he starts throwing tables and money changers over, and those... But where those were, they were situated in the very place that was supposed to be reserved for the Gentiles to pray. Right? And then he quotes both Isaiah and Jeremiah, and he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. You see, in this whole demonstration, he's already beginning to correct the incorrect assumptions of the crowd and of anybody else who thinks they've got Jesus the Christ on their side now, that the Messiah has come for their agenda now. He's already beginning to correct the incorrect assumptions by essentially standing up for the Gentiles to have a place uh, to enter for prayer. He's proclaiming that he has come with reconciliation for everybody. He's not come to make Israel a great nation, but to take on their calling of being priest to all the nations. So he didn't come to lead Israel into political power, but to reconcile people of all nations to God. And he has the authority and power to do it. And this chapter and the next chapter is just filled. It's just a display of Jesus' authority. Let's talk about what Jesus does the next morning with this fig tree. Because honestly, this fig tree scene has always kind of bothered me. Jesus comes out to the fig tree in the morning to get some fruit. And finding that it doesn't have any figs on it, he curses it, and the tree just withers immediately. And I just, it's always rubbed me wrong. It seems a little weird. It seems, I know I'm wrong on this, but it kind of seems like Jesus is in a bad mood. Like maybe he woke up on the wrong side of the bed, or maybe he hasn't had his first cup of coffee, 
and he just takes it out on this fig tree. Like that's, I, I know that that's wrong. Hear me, that's wrong. But that's what's always been in my head. But I have to answer then, if that's not the case, if Jesus isn't just in a bad mood and like cursing all the trees, then what, what's going on? But as we see uh, all through this chapter and into the next, like I said, Jesus is demonstrating his and proclaiming his authority and its implications. He wasted no time, like came into the city and just started throwing tables over, right? He's wasted no time in challenging the authorities to be. And here we see him pressing in on his disciples because they'll need to be completely confident in his authority very, very soon. He demonstrates and he declares through this scene that he has authority over all things, right? He's not just another powerful leader, another effective king that can take power. He's God. He's the creator of all things, and all things were made through him and for him. That's what Colossians 1.16 says. And he, he's going about the business of putting things back to the way he created them to be, reconciling all things. And so with the mountain scenery, like the, the, the disciples come and ask him, hey, like, what's up with the tree and how did that happen, right? And so with mountain scenery likely in view, Jesus says that with a little faith, they can actually move mountains should they ask him to do it. You see, certainly if Jesus can like wither a tree right in front of them, he can command anything to do anything. That means he can even command the hearts of men. See, his authority, like I said, is on showcase in this chapter. His authority is on display. He is, he's making the cross happen. I, I don't know if we've said it enough, but like he set course for the cross long before this in the story of Matthew. Set, the course was set by Jesus, not by anybody else. Nobody else is making it happen. His authority is making it happen. Jesus is making the cross happen. He's in complete control. Nothing gets by the Lord. He's sovereign. His authority is on display and his authority matters because how else will he overthrow the fallen kingdom that rules the hearts of you and I and the whole world if he doesn't have authority to kick out the enemy? His authority matters. That's why the Great Commission, which is just a few chapters off now, begins by proclaiming what authority Jesus has and whose authority the disciples are operating under. So after he's mad at the fig tree, Jesus enters the temple again. And he begins teaching. And while he's doing so, some of the chief priests and elders came to him and they're asking questions and trying to test him. And the, and the conversation kind of follows typical debates of the day. And Jesus, instead of answering their question directly, he just turns it back on them. He asked them a question in, in turn. And this is in Matthew 21, 24 through 27. I'm going to read this. You can follow along. Matthew 21, 24 through 27. As the chief priests and elders come questioning him about where his authority comes from, this is how Jesus answers. It says, Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, well, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. They've challenged the authority of Jesus. 
And now Jesus begins to challenge theirs and to assert his own authority. And he does this with a couple of parables. And as we've talked about, as we've seen parables throughout the book of Matthew, Jesus uses parables to invoke some sort of response or make some sort of indictment, something that makes you respond. You have to answer to it in some way. And in this case, in these parables, that response that is being invoked is to recognize the true authority, which is Jesus, and to decide who you're going to follow, right? There's really no walking away from this conversation undecided. That's the thing. They've questioned his authority. Now he questions theirs and then asserts that he is the authority. And he leaves them no room with these parables to walk away undecided. We see these two parables. In the parable of the two sons, which is the first one, excuse me, uh, Jesus starts putting the priests and the elders to question. He, he tells a story of one son who the father comes to and says, son, go, walk in, go work in the vineyard. And the son's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And then uh, the father goes away and then the son changes his mind and he goes and works in the vineyard. And the father also goes to his second son and says, I need you to go work in the vineyard. And he's like, yes, father, I'll do that. But then the father goes away and he doesn't go and work in the vineyard. And so Jesus asks this question to the, the priests and the elders. Which son did the, did the will of the father? Which of these two sons did the will of the father? The answer, uh, they answer that it was the first son who did the will of the father. And Jesus responds with this indictment in chapter 21, 31 through 32. He says, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So there's no walking away undecided from this. The evidence of who Jesus is has been clear for quite some time and it's clear for us for quite some time as we've been going through Matthew, but they continue to choose their own kingdom, their own agendas. They continue to choose their own way over repenting and submitting to the kingdom of heaven. So I have to ask, like, where do we fall? Where do you fall? Where do I fall? Jesus has been clear about who he is, about what he's come to do. It may not be what you expected. It may not be fitting your agenda. It may not fit the kingdom you would build. But he's calling you to turn and to follow him. The question is, are you going to follow him? Or are you going to commodify Jesus to build your own kingdom and to fulfill your own agenda that you've built on your own understanding and out of your own wisdom? There's no room to walk away undecided. And Jesus doesn't let up. He tells a second parable. It's the parable of the tenants. The parable of the tenants is this. It's just to sum it up. A master takes some land and he plants a vineyard and he builds all the stuff you need to make the vineyard run, right? And then he leases it out to some tenants. And they're going to make it run and then obviously they'll make a payment to the master. That's how it works. And so when the time of the harvest comes, when the time for the fruit comes, the master sends some servants to collect his portion of the fruit, his payment for the, the, the vineyard that he's leasing to his tenants. But the tenants beat and kill and stone the servants that he sends, which is messed up. And so then the master says, well, I'll send more servants. And he sends more servants, and then the tenants beat and kill and stone the second batch of them too. 
And then the master says, well, I'll send my son, who obviously demands a little more respect, has more authority. I'll send him to collect my payment. And so the son goes, but the tenants see an opportunity to get rid of the heir. And so they take him out, they throw him out of the vineyard, and they kill him. So Jesus asked the question, what will the master do to these tenants? They killed his servants. They beat his servants. They killed his servants. And they killed his son. What will the master do to these tenants? And they say that he will, they answer and say that he will kill them and lease out the property to tenants who will hold up the agreement and produce fruit. See, the indictment is clear, I think. The indictment is clear. There's no walking away undecided. These leaders, these priests, these elders, Pharisees, everybody, (laughs) these leaders are not leading the people of God in the ways of God or on the mission of God, which he entrusted them with, right? Which was to take the fame of God to the nations, to be a priest to the nations. They're not leading the people of God to be the people of God, to be the priest of God, to be uh, on mission with the mission that God has given them. Instead, they have tried to take what is God's and make it their own. They're building their own kingdom. And honestly, They're looking to wield power and to lord it over all the nations. They are less concerned about taking God and who he really is and his grace and his love to the nations and his glory to the nations. They want their own glory. They want their own kingdom. They want power and they want to lord it over the nations. The question is, what will God do when they kill his son? What will God do when they kill his son? The passage continues and it's, it's really... This is really beautiful to me. How Matthew kind of bookends this chapter with references uh, to the songs that are of the Passover. I just want us to look real quick about how Jesus finishes this conversation out. It's in Matthew uh, 21, 42 through 46. Matthew 21, 42 through 46. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has, come, has become the cornerstone that this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Remember, at the beginning of this passage, the crowd sees Jesus coming in on the, on the colt. And they're getting the message, at least in part. And they begin to recite a song from, Psalms one, from Psalm 118 as Jesus enters the city. Hosanna, right? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And here, Jesus references the same passage to illustrate how he had not come for the purposes that many had expected. He didn't come for the same things that many people had expected. He's trying to broaden the understanding of why the Messiah King was really needed. Here, Jesus is specifically referencing just a few verses prior to those uh, that were referenced at the beginning, which the crowd chanted upon his, revival, uh, his arrival. That's Psalm 118, 22 through 23, and this is what he says. He says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. In this passage, in Psalm 118, 
initially uh, understood to speak of Israel as being rejected and being the suffering servant, again, illustrates, as we've seen several times throughout Matthew, how Jesus was taking on the identity and the mission of Israel as the suffering servant, which makes the way for the reconciliation of all things. He came to do what the nation of Israel was incapable of doing. Then after that, there's a saying about one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and, one, uh, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. He said he's the cornerstone. One who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And see, a common saying of the day was that if, like a clay pot, if a pot fell on a rock, it would shatter, uh, it would break. And if a rock fell upon a pot, it would be crushed. Either way, woe to the pot. Right? So he's referencing that that little saying, and he's calling himself the rock. As Jesus uses this saying, he's clearly identifying himself as the rock, the cornerstone, and he says that many would fall on it and shatter while others will be crushed. This is what I want us to see. Every, every other agenda, hear me, every other agenda, every other kingdom, big or small, every other Everything other than Jesus is fragile, it's powerless, it lacks truth. There's nothing good in it. And it's unable to stand up against him. He's the rock. And he'll either shatter whatever falls on it or he'll crush whatever he falls on. The chief priests, the elders, the crowds, they all wanted Jesus so much as he could benefit their agendas and their paradigms. And we're in danger of the same attitude, the same heart posture, is that we want Jesus as long as he can benefit our agendas and our kingdoms. And I think we all tend to extremes. I know we all tend to extremes. Left, right, we tend one way or the other. Toward love at the expense of truth, towards truth at the expense of love. Toward legalism or towards abuse of freedom. And we will commodify Jesus to fit our agenda, to, to fit our desires, to fit our uh, ideas and our understanding and our kingdoms. But we all have it wrong. We all have it wrong. In our extremes, we are all wrong. Jesus is the center. Jesus is our center. Jesus is the rock. And we're all wrong in our extremes. We're all off course and naturally like bent to one way or the other, but we just want to go any way but his naturally because we're fallen. We are under the rule of somebody else if we're not under the rule of Jesus. And so it will keep us at all cost from looking to Christ. And so it bends us one way or the other to one extreme or another to keep us from looking to Jesus. And we're all wrong in our extremes. We're off course. We're bent the wrong way. We're going any way but the right way. But here's the gospel principle. It's a gospel principle that we've shared uh, a few times throughout the book of Matthew, and it's the one that we've got to hear today. Is that true righteousness begins at the end of ourselves. True righteousness begins at the end of yourself. Do you want to make the world a better place? I think most of us want to make the world a better place. There's something in us that wants that for whatever reason. But Jesus didn't come to make your agenda work and he didn't come to make your idea work. He didn't come to make your kingdom work. He didn't come to prove you right because he's the answer. 
Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. He's the only way. And he came not to prove that you're right. He came to make you right with God, with others, and with all of creation. And your and my primary concern has to be to just follow him. Our primary concern ought to be to follow him, even when it begins to offend us. And it will offend us because we're naturally bent a different way than he is. And so eventually he's going to offend us. So we ought to be following him even when it offends us. Is Jesus really anything more than a commodity to us? That's the question. Because he didn't prove, he didn't come to prove you right. He came to make you right with God and with others and with all creation. And saying that insinuates that there is something broken and that there is something not right about you. So the question has to be, can we trust him enough to be vulnerable before him? Can we trust him with that? To be wrong before him? This whole chapter, chapter 21, started on a Sunday and it takes us into Monday. And within a week, Jesus will have completed the work that he came to do. He'll go to the cross and he'll die and he'll rise again. Within a week, like now Sunday, next Sunday, Jesus will have been on the cross, died and rose again and finished the work. That's how close we are. And in so doing, he makes a way for us to be made right by going to the cross, by dying and rising again. He makes a way to make us right. So you have to tell me, you tell yourself, can he be trusted with your vulnerability? Can he be trusted with my vulnerability? I say you can be vulnerable with the one who already knows all the ugly truth about you. I can be vulnerable with the one who already knows everything ugly about me and who has already paid the price to help me even while I'm set against him. You can trust So over the next few weeks, we'll be following along with Matthew through these final few days of Jesus' ministry as we go through the season of Lent and into Resurrection Sunday. It's a season of heart posturing for us individually and as a church. It's a season where we have to ask the question, are we going to use him as a commodity? Is our posture over Jesus or is our posture below Jesus? Are we lording over him and telling him what we can use him for or is he over us? It's a season of heart posturing for us each and for us as a church. So I'm asking that you come to him in prayer, that you fast through the season from something, just to draw your eyes to Jesus, not to like fulfill anything or earn us anything. Spend some time in devotion, spend extra time in the word and begin to ask, who is Jesus really? Not who did you anticipate he was. Not who would you expect Jesus to be. Not who do you naturally think Jesus, what a savior would look like for you. Who is Jesus really? What does the Bible say about who Jesus really is? Who is he? What did he do, really? What does that say about who you are? What does it say about who I am? 
What does it say about who your neighbor is? And how should you live in response to that? I want you to ask for eyes to see rightly, to be able to see the way that God sees, to be able to see the way that Jesus sees, to see through a different paradigm than your own, a corrected paradigm than your own. Whose authority are you really submitting to? Is Jesus the Christ and King? Because it can't be that for us if we sit on the throne deciding and defining him from our wisdom, from our understanding, and from our agendas. He can't be our Christ and King that way. Is he more than a commodity to you? Because he didn't come to prove you right. He came to make you right with God and with others and with all of creation. We're going to move into a time of response and it's just a time uh, first that you can begin to maybe pray and to look to Jesus, just to turn our eyes to Jesus together. The band will come and they'll sing and lead us in worship through song. And you can sit where you are and you can pray or you can stand and you can raise your hands and you can sing praises to Jesus. It's also a time where we'll give our offerings and tithes. There's a basket in the back where you can do that. And that's a time of worship as well. It's a time of saying, I'm operating from your paradigm and from your wisdom and your understanding. I'm being obedient. I'm worshiping you, God. And I'm, not, I'm forsaking my own understanding. So we can do that there. It's also a time of prayer. We'll have some people in the back. They'll have orange tags on it say that they are available to pray. If you want to pray, pray with them. We invite you to do that. If you want to take Jesus, go see them. Come catch somebody. Put your trust in them this morning. And lastly, we're going to come and we're going to take communion. We do this every Sunday at Redemption Church. And logistically, we just come down the middle aisle. We go one way or the other. We take the bread. We dip it in the wine or the juice. And as we do that, we're proclaiming and remembering that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. Not who I said he is, or not what you said he is. He is who he says he is, and he really is who he says he is. And he's really done what he said he would do. And he came, and he died, and he rose again. He paid for our penalty. He paid for our sin. He's kicking the kingdom of Satan out of our hearts. And he's entering into us. And he's entered into us. He's given us life. He's made a way for, for, uh, for us to begin life now and into eternity. And remembering that we find life in him. We come and we take and remember the body and the blood of Christ that made that way. And so we say that to each other. When we do this, it's saying it to one another. I believe. Jesus is who he said he is. And it's a proclamation to one another because we're forgetful people and we need to be reminded weekly. Actually, we need to be reminded daily. That Jesus is who he said he is. And that you're not first. He's first. That he didn't come to prove us right. He came to make us right. And so if you're a member of this church or not, but if you're a Christian and you want to come, we invite you to come and take with us and proclaim Christ together. If you're not a Christian, we ask that you stay where you are because you're not saying that you believe in Jesus. And so this is an act of saying that you believe in Jesus. We ask you not to do that. Instead, hear what we're saying in our actions. Hear what we're proclaiming in our actions. Jesus Christ came for you. Jesus Christ came to make you right, came to give you life like you didn't know existed. He came to bring, make you right with all of creation, make you right with God. So I'm going to pray for us and then we'll move into that time. Um, Father, I thank you for this, this day. I thank you for this time this morning and I pray that Jesus is just made great among us. I just, I pray that the name of Jesus is, is known, that we 
hear who he really is. That your Holy Spirit would like, just press into us and give us eyes to see Jesus for who he really is, for what he's really done. Or let's, don't let us walk away undecided. We know that you have authority. You've made it clear that you have all authority in heaven and earth. And you didn't come to prove us right. You came to make us right. Thank you for making us right. Thank you, Jesus, for making us right. Thank you for leading us into the way of obedience and to the way of life. I pray, Father, that you just open our hearts to get that. That we would continue uh, even more to submit uh, our lives and all areas of our life uh, to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus Christ. Lead us into that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.